I am Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Harry Verhoeven, professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, Qatar. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So you just came back from Qatar, right? Mm -hmm. And you know the scene there very, very well. And now we've been looking at the the conflict there, Qatar and the other Gulf states. What do you really think is behind it? I mean, we have our own views, but what, what's your take? Well, I think fundamentally um, what is happening is a clash between very different visions of what a modern Gulf state should look like and who should rule it. And the understanding that is quite prevalent both in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh is quite different from that in Doha. And what essentially is at stake in this dispute, this embargo that was imposed last year during Ramadan on Qatar by the four blockading countries led by the Saudis and the Emiratis, mm -hmm. is really whether Qatar has the, the sovereignty, the autonomy, to pursue a vision of society, including a foreign policy, that is quite different from the others. Um, and you know, Which is, is more, more liberal. It is more liberal more in many ways. More in some ways, yes. Absolutely. The yeah. very fact, for example, mm -hmm. that we as Georgian are able to operate there, yeah. to offer classes, events, conferences on the war in Syria, on the war in Yemen, on sectarianism, on religious extremism, on authoritarianism, is something that is unfortunately not possible in many of the neighboring countries. I'll give you an example. Last year, we organized, two years ago now, a conference on, uh, on writing women's lives and on women activism. Right. It was remarkable for two things. On the one hand, the fact that you get 100 women from all over the room, in a room together, to talk about these issues. Again, very difficult to imagine in the neighboring countries. But secondly, the fact that many of them uh, were highly critical, including, for example, even the Qatari monarchy. So, for example, we had a paper there by a Qatari scholar, young scholar, uh, criticizing nationality law, the fact that only men can pass on Qatari citizenship, not women. The idea of having something like this in Riyadh or Rabi Dhabi no, that's not, is not only impossible, uh, it's but it's, impossible, it's, it's yeah. considered by them yeah. to be dangerous. Yeah. And so there is huge frustration with, uh, for example, what the Qatar Foundation does, the charitable arm of the royal family as held by Sheikha Moza and her daughter. Um, and so Qatar is in many ways, and for that, in, in, in that regard, considered by the two others um, as, very, as very troubling and as holding out a vision of society, whether it's a good or bad one, it's up to everybody to, to decide, but a vision of society that is quite threatening. And so, for example, um, we know that many Saudis who used to come, particularly during the weekends, to, to Doha, and where, for example, women could drive, and women, Saudi women are one of the number one cause of traffic accidents. In Qatar, because without experience and without knowledge of the city, you can imagine that some, some difficult things happen. But so, yeah. you know, this has been a thorn in the side of these other two countries that are, of course, at the same time undergoing a very important political restructuring. As you know, Abu Dhabi, after 2008, has managed to centralize power in the Emirates to agree that it was impossible to imagine under Sheikh Zayed. And, you know, when the, the different Emirates were acted more like a confederation. Uh, very similarly, of course, you have the very... Uh, remarkable state-building and nation-building effort by Mohammed bin Salman, who's trying to change the very yeah, nature of the yeah, social contract yeah. in Saudi Arabia. Um, and it is against that background, of course, that the alternative Qatari way of doing things must be understood and must be understood as profoundly threatening for the other... For the but other. Basically, what I mean, from as I say, it's a cultural conflict, cultural war, mm -hmm. so to speak. Now, from, from my we see it now, the son, what's his name, of the King Salman? Yeah, Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman have obviously been trying to introduce some reforms. Yes. 
do, do, can you, invent, do you envision the possibility that because of his rise to power, that the relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia may take a different turn any time? No, because I, th I think that people should be under no illusion as to what the reforms really are. The most important reform that he's undertaken is not allowing women under certain conditions to drive. It is the centralization of power. It is the way in which he's cutting down on the expenses and the autonomy of individual princes and of the ulama. That's the really important yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Not the cosmetic changes, you know, organizing a, a rock concert or getting a few... No, 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 of course and, not. And so, yeah. and, so, and so in that sense... You know, it's a, it's a classic project of conservative modernization. Think of Ataturk in Turkey, think of the Meiji Revolution in Japan. It's this kind of top-down centralization of power in the hand of a state builder um, who's undertaking a huge gamble in the process, both externally as well as internally, as I think is, is widely established. And so uh, it would be a mistake to see Mohammed bin Salman somehow as a, as a liberal reformer. He's a deeply illiberal character. No, no, I, I would <laughs> never suggest he's a liberal reformer. <laughs> but but uh, let me just take it to the other side, you know. Uh, no, no, we, we know what, what Erdogan is trying to do in, in, uh, in I mean, basically, Turkey has become an authoritarian state. Mm -hmm. you know? Whereas Qatar, in a way, is moving a little bit away from that. Yes. What it is that they see eye to eye still, the Qataris and the Turks. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this, to me, this was an interesting thing I wanted to For look sure. into. What is it from your perspective? Well, there's two things. From the perspective of Qatar, it's 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 a useful ally. Qatar, at the end of the day, remains a small state that has been uh, confronted with this, because of its geography, with this almost impossible international relations situation where you have two regional hegemons on its doorstep. On the one hand, Iran, with which it shares, of, of course, course yeah. the South Pars gas field, and Saudi Arabia. So the question of state survival has been on the mind of every Qatari leader since independence in 1971. How do you maintain the territorial integrity of this small country knowing that it could be overrun within half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, either from a Saudi or from, from Iran. So from the Qatari perspective, any kind of external force that can help you expand the autonomy you have is very welcome. And hence, of course, why Qatar on the one hand does build all these extensive ties with the West, France, UK, yeah. Germany, United States, of course. But on the other hand, why Qatar has always sought to balance Iran and, and Saudi and Turkey, from that perspective, is very useful. There is very little, um, you know, even culturally that Erdogan and his party and the Qatari leadership share. It is a a, a marriage of of reason it's a, of, um, of convenience and of convenience. Uh, of convenience, yeah, yeah. But when you mention, you know, Qatar is squeezed between the two major powers, but on the other hand, the United States enjoys tremendous influence in Qatar. Yes, and do the Qataris need to be concerned? I mean, who would invade or who would? Put the, any, you know, use any kind of serious pressure on the Qataris as long as the United States is, is a, has a considerable presence in there. That's right. And they've been relying on the United States to a great extent uh, to maintain their independence rather than be concerned about Iran mm. and or Saudi Arabia. Well, the United States has been very important, but the Qataris, and I think wisely so, have always said that, you know, we will we hope the United States can help us out, but we are not taking any chances. We've seen the United States many times in its history, including in the Middle East, of course, drop its allies when convenient. Um, and you saw this, for example, when the embargo was imposed, um, you know, the, the positions taken, particularly by the president of this country, of the United States, were very unsettling. If at the same time, the Emiratis, as we know they were doing, were offering the United States, oh, you can move the military base here. 
yeah, it's the military base indeed that is ultimately the guarantee of Qatari independence. Well, that's that's exactly the yeah, reason. Absolutely. I mean, when you have the largest military base in the, in the Middle East, is in Qatar itself, it's not no matter. I don't think this president and his successor is going to think in terms of moving the base from one country to the next. That's not going to happen. No, it it, it shouldn't. That's, but again, yeah. if if you're a Qatari policy, if you're the Emir, you want to believe that. But you want to make sure that you have everything else in terms of contingency, which is also why Turkish troops are also now in, in Qatar have been invited. It's not a huge presence, but it's symbolic and it helps increase the potential cost of invasion, for example, by, by Saudi Arabia or by Iran. But that is one of the main contentious mm-hmm. issues between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Yes. Qatar and the, and the and Emirates, uh, mm-hmm. Abu Dhabi and all of that. But so from, as I, when I know, mm-hmm. talking to them is saying, why do we need Turkey to be there? I mean, as far as Turkey is concerned, uh, you know, they're still living under the, sh- the shadow yes. and the dark cloud of the Ottomans. Yes. Era. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is one thing they really don't want to see happen, that uh, the Turkish presence, however small and insignificant, especially compared to the United States, they don't want to see that. And I think this is one of the things Qatar is refusing refusing under any circumstances to ask the Turks to leave. Well, the Turks, of course, it's important to say the Turks came in response to the blockade. So, you know, the, the, the perverse effects of this blockade, and this is where I think it was a, a foreign policy blunder by Mohammed bin Salman of historic proportions, is that Qatar today is closer to Iran and closer to Turkey than it was before. Qatar has been pushed into the arms of whoever is able to guarantee its sovereignty. You know, if you're a small country, I come from Belgium, for example, right? We have had a historically similar problem where we are right next to Germany, to France, and United Kingdom. So I know something about the fears that small countries have when confronted with big countries that have histories of invasion. But it's quite a stretch, you know. You're talking about the need for support, need for defense. Uh, It's a part of the the Gulf uh, Council. Isn't this, I mean, uh, I understand reaching out to Iran, the proximity, the relationship has been there. But of course, there's that's a there's a major for, for Saudi Arabia. It's a major problem uh, having any of the Gulf states coming close to to Iran. Yes. And they know the Iran's Iranian intention, all of that. But as reaching out to Turkey, this is some some sort of a stretch. Yes. Specifically, given the history of Turkey in the region. Absolutely, but but I think Saudi Arabia would probably agree that for all the doubts it has about Turkish troops, rather Turkish troops than Iranian troops, right, on your border. I mean, but they don't want any troops. They want no, any they don't. But, but then they shouldn't have opposed the blockade, <laughs> yeah. of course. I mean, here's yeah. the thing. Again, imagine that you are sitting in in Doha with the Emir. At independence in 1971, Saudi Arabia, Saudi troops occupied the stretch of land between Qatar and UAE that connected the two and made it part of Saudi Arabia. These fears about territorial integrity being challenged are not imaginary. The same thing happened with the United Arab Emirates and Iran. Iran occupied three islands that belong to this that belong to the UAE. And so the fear that these countries have of having this country that is bigger than all of them put together right on their doorstep with major American backing is a very, I think, a very legitimate and very real fear. And Qatari foreign policy must always be seen through that lens. Qatar's foreign policy is not driven, in my understanding, by ideology, but by the quest to give them options, to give them autonomy as much as possible from everybody. They have the relationship with France, with Germany and the UK to give them autonomy from the United States. They have the relationship with the West to give them autonomy Mm -hmm. from Saudi and Iran. They are increasingly building relations with Africa to give them autonomy from the partners on this side of the Red Sea. 
this is what drives Qatari foreign policy at, at heart, mm-hmm. an effort to protect as much as possible a different state society compact than in the other GCC states. Now, is that destabilizing in some cases? Yes. That's exactly the point. That is, if you are reaching out and you have the kind of relationship with so many players around, you know, with Africa, Europe, the United States, Iran, Turkey, <laughs> and, uh, and on and on. So where do you go with that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that in and of itself creates also a major foreign policy. Absolutely. Uh, that's, and this, that is why I think when the Qatar is going to have to think in terms of, okay, mm. we feel vulnerable. We have a problem. We have a problem with our Gulf partners. Uh, but we are stuck with the Gulf partners. <laughs> we cannot move our country. We <laughs> cannot move the country. Now, if you're stuck with the Gulf, how I see mm-hmm. it, if you're stuck with your, with your, with your neighbors, if I were to fashion foreign policy for Qatar, I'd say, okay, let me see what can I do in order to resume a decent relationship because I have no choice. Agreed. Because I have no choice. Now, what are they doing in this regard from your perspective? Because I don't see them. uh, I don't see them. I had a meeting with the Qatari ambassador. Was it three, four weeks ago when I was in D.C.? Mm. And I asked him this very question. I said, tell me, where do you go from here? You are reaching out and I understand. Do you really think Turkey is going to be able to come? Let's suppose you are threatened. Let's suppose Saudi Arabia said, do you really think Turkey is going to come and fight the Saudis? It's a good question, absolutely. He said, no. So why do you need the, the, I don't think you are antagonizing the Saudis because you have Turkish, however small, uh, symbolic presence yes, for that matter. They don't have an answer. That's what Agreed. They don't have an answer. So, so what they're trying and creating is a set of impressions. We have this and we have a relationship with everybody. Everybody loves us, but they are not making sure that the one who really needs to love them <laughs> is their neighbor. Right. So where, you know, you, you see, you're sitting mm. there, where do you see them? I mean, they need to start thinking in more realistic terms in terms of what am I going to do? Yep. I'm stuck with these guys here. Alan, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a, um, a, a central dilemma for them. And I think that, that Sheikh Tamim um, understood that when he came to power um, a number of years ago, um, that his father in particular had overreached. For example, the role that Qatar played in Egypt and in, and in Libya, uh, which perhaps understandable in the context of the Arab Spring, but of course also majorly worried players that said, and who is that small upstart that thinks it can decide, determine the faith of these countries rather than traditionally leaving it, for example, to the Saudis. Um, the Qatari answer in part of that is, well, you know, the, the problem with, with closer integration in the GCC and having better relations with Saudi is look at what happened to Bahrain. Bahrain is de facto a protectorate of Saudi Arabia now, but Bahrain has lost all independence. And so in that sense, they're, they're, they're stuck between, on the one hand, as you rightly said, this major foreign policy problem which is that this quest for autonomy imperils, mm-hmm. ironically, yeah. sometimes yeah. their freedom to maneuver. Right, right. Yet at the same time, their insistence on, you know, look, the countries that have taken another route, it de facto means losing your independence. And so it's a, it's a tricky thing for them. The truth on, on your other question of what are they doing is unfortunately very little. I mean, at the moment, positions are, are very much entrenched. Um, I mean, the, you have to know that the current emir has really become a statesman of his, of, <laughs> has come into his own as a statesman. And he's no longer considered the son of, but is considered Tamim 
in his own, on his own, in his own right. And so yeah. now again, there's a contradiction that. between the, do the domestic credentials, mm -hmm. where he's been bolstered, genuinely bolstered, and then the foreign policy, where you know, realism, as you rightly say, uh, highlights that he should at least find a way of living. The other side should find a way of living too with yeah. with, with this. So it's um, but it's, he, yeah, he, and here's where a good negotiator could help. Of course, a good friend to both sides could help. The United States, unfortunately, has not been very forthcoming and very willing to, to play that role in part because of the, particularly in part because of the president's, the president's views. Uh, the Secretary of State, who had apparently a different view, was never allowed to bring much. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> the one we were talking about a few a few weeks and months ago. But so he, he, he was never allowed to bring any, any power uh, or genuine influence to the mediation. And so I think that, um, that that would certainly help both sides to get out of the tricky situation. I mean, there's, I haven't mentioned the Emirates much, but from the Emirates perspective, there is also a lot of frustration you should know in Dubai. Not only because lots of Qatari investment has been pulled out of Dubai and the price of real estate has been plummeting, but also, of course, because Dubai is traditionally a lot more pragmatic vis-a-vis -vis Iran because of the presence of Iranian traders. And so this hardline stance of Abu Dhabi, completely in line with Saudi, uh, yeah, regardless yeah, of the other yeah, partners, yeah. is causing a lot of friction there. So I think that the different countries, all for their own reasons, Saudi because it's worried about Iran, Qatar because, as you rightly said, it's running into the limits of what it can mm -hmm. do, and the Emirates because actually in order to maintain unity between the seven component parts of the federation uh, would do well actually also to find the settlements. All three parties, if you look at it that way, would certainly benefit from it. But I think without without some good good mediation, it's going to be hard yeah. to get there because a lot of personal feelings have been affected by this blockade. Don't forget that um, almost every Qatari has, has, has family, extended family in all of the blockading countries. I mean, lots of Qataris are intermarried with people from Bahrain, from yeah, Saudi, yeah. from the Emirates. They are not allowed to communicate with yeah. them. They are not allowed to travel in Gulf society, that's a big deal. Yeah. And so that's I, part of the problem. You no, know, well. you are absolutely right. I mean, look, the, 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 the longer the blockade lasts, the more permanent it becomes. Right. That is, it, it, it would develop its own dynamics. And you're not going to be able to reverse it next day. Because what's happening now since the block has been imported, you have far greater support, you know, merchandise, goods, all kind of goods coming from Iran, yes. from all over. And so they have now shifted their dependence to a great. Now, to what, how, when can they, in fact, even if they want to reverse it, it's going to become extremely, extremely difficult. But one of the other accusations mm. that, that, that um, Qatar, I don't think Qatar is dealing with it well, mm. and that has been accused of supporting extremist groups. Right. Now, why is it, I mean, I have my own speculations. Sure. One of these extremist groups, which is more visible than any other, is Hamas. Yes. Now, um, Hamas is an entity. I, do, I personally don't consider Hamas to be a terrorist group, notwithstanding what other people are saying. Right. But Hamas definitely is is, is extremist group, at least in their relations with the, not just with Israel, but in terms of Saudi Arabia right. and Jordan and others. Mm -hmm. so anything, any offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood is a no-no when it comes yes. to, to the Gulf state. Now, here's another area where the Qataris need to rethink their position as far as why support extremist groups such as Hamas, as other jihadist groups, basically they're going out of their way, in a way, to do that mm. when it is not giving them any real advantage. So you can say Ithkar has an advantage with Turkey, has an advantage to deal with Iran. But what are their advantage in supporting, directly and indirectly, extremist groups mm. 
that is only undermining their position rather than mm. enhancing their position? It's a good question. I, I think the Qatari uh, viewpoint on this would be that the fact that Qatar has extensive ties, whether it is with the Taliban or with Hamas or Jabhat al-Nusra or other such groups, is that Qatar can at least play the role of credible mediator when you do need to talk to these groups and talk, you, you have to. There is no other way. I mean, if you want to get back certain hostages, if you want to open certain humanitarian corridors, if you want to guarantee a basic sense of security in large parts of all of these countries, whether it's Syria, Afghanistan or, or Palestine slash Israel, um, and so Qatar, in that sense, has always uh, tried to leverage that position, which makes it very unpopular often with, with politicians and foreign services, but very popular with intelligence services. And there has always been a very deep intelligence cooperation that even at times of, of political upheaval continues because they know that Qatar has phone numbers and contacts and influence over groups that is extremely useful. I mean, take, take for example the case of the United States. Bo Bergdahl would never have been released without Qatar involvement. Except Italian nurses kidnapped in Syria, etc. So the Qataris would, would probably tell you that the reason why it is important that they maintain relations, perhaps not financial, but at least that there is some kind of political and logistical relationship, uh, offers a service to the international system, which nobody likes to provide or talk about, but which is necessary. This, this is true, except that um, when you, uh, your biases are too obvious. Right. That's the problem. Right. I mean, it is okay to assume the position and as a mediator, I can be helpful because I have a relationship with everybody. Mm -hmm. As long as you maintain, uh, you, you don't have any kind of biases. Right. And so you then you can be a respected mediator. We won't want to hear what you have got to say, you have good relationship. But here, uh, Qatar did not hide right. its biases right. toward Hamas and toward or Taliban and other groups. Mm. That's the problem. Mm. And I think they need to think in terms of if we want this kind of relationship, where we have to think in terms of how we can be useful, if that's the contention. We can have, we can become, we can play a role right. bigger than themselves. Sure. But, but don't forget, Alan, there is a fair amount of hypocrisy here that's important to point out. Don't forget. On their part. Uh, on the part of everybody here. Yeah. Don't forget that the only Gulf leader who's ever met an Israeli prime minister was Hamad bin Khalifa. The Emir of Qatar, the last Emir yeah, of Qatar. Yeah. Don't forget that Israel had a trade office in Doha between '96 and 2008. This is true. Which are liaisons that no other Gulf country has ever offered to Israel. So when there's this suggestion that Qatar is somehow ideologically in line with jihadism or suicide bombers, this needs to be taken with a serious pinch of salt. Except that yeah. you know, what you mentioned yeah. is correct. Except with that, yeah. what I know is that. Um, the, the reason, the, the relationship between Israel and, and, and Qatar severed for a while. I think there's now a new effort to resume, yes, to resume that, obviously. It is because of a discussion or disagreement mm. about Hamas. Yes. That was one of the... What happened in 2008, 2009. Exactly. Yeah. And what they were saying to, the Israel, to Hamas, Israel, to the, to the Qataris, you know, you know where we stand on this issue. You are obviously giving them money, giving them support, giving all of this. You should, if you're going to want to play a role, why don't you play a more constructive role? Mm -hmm. I personally advance mm -hmm. this idea with the Israelis as well as the Qataris at one point, going back a couple right. of few years, as well with Turkey. And I suggested you have good relationship with Hamas. Why don't you try to play a more constructive role? Mm -hmm. Well, the Qataris really, uh, you know, they wanted to have the cake and eat it in many yes. ways. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I think absolutely you're right. I mean, that we come back to your, your earlier point, which I think is absolutely accurate. That is that 
Qatar certainly has a useful role to play, but has an, many times overstepped it. And I've for, forgotten yeah. the limits as a very small country mm-hmm. in the geography that it finds itself. Um, that you cannot do that without paying a price, perhaps even a heavy price. And as I said, the father, uh, Hamad bin Khalifa, towards the end of his of his term in office, clearly faced this issue. Uh, the son, I think, is a bit more uh, is a bit more troublesome. I think part of the reason why they're picking on Qatar is because the son uh, was lot, was a lot more in, inexperienced, and they they hoped, of course, that he would be an easier an easier target. There was actually a lot of hope, as as, as I'm sure you know, that there would be an internal coup that a part of the Al Thani family would remove this part mm-hmm. of the family and would install a more classically pro Saudi illiberal uh, government uh, that hasn't happened if, if anything the contrary so again yeah I, I think i think you're right you know qatar in the longer run certainly needs this this blockade to be lifted whatever nationalist bluster of course you hear on the streets yeah, of Doha. Yeah, yeah yeah but so i think so i think does the united states so i think does saudi arabia and so i think does the uae i think all of them need a um, a solution to this uh, knowing of course that even if if the, the embargo is lifted that i think the gcc as an organization is dead I mean, I've traveled a lot to Oman uh, in uh, in recent months yeah, yeah. and to Kuwait. Yeah. Of course, from their perspective, what Saudi has done, this is a precedent that you cannot create. If you disagree with a member state, with a brotherly country, you cannot just cut off medical supplies, food and water. No, that, that and was... So the GCC, in that sense, I'm afraid it's a terrible it's mistake. I mean, terrible mistake. You cannot maintain that kind of unity, so-called unity at this point. Uh, and when you take this kind of unilateral action, far more severe that's warranted. Right. I think the discussion should have been much more moderate. You know, we have issues, let's try to resolve sure. it. But imposing this kind of um, you know, embargo, so to speak, and and leaving very little room for the give and take. Mm-hmm. So l- l- let's take it from a different mm-hmm. angle for a second. So there is a conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask the Saudis, the Qataris, and everyone else in there, do you want to find a solution? They will all tell you, absolutely, we want to find a solution. So let us say, assume there's a common interest in finding a solution. Mm. Now, how do we go about finding a solution? That is, we're going to have to sort of try to redefine the, the, the problem, the real problem. You see, which, can, which, which of them can be mitigated, can yes. be agreed upon, and which is not. From your perspective, let me ask you this, and I'll mm. give it some thought myself. Mm. What what are the issues that can be quickly, quickly, relatively speaking, mitigated in order to begin to ease the tension and begin to and to start to restore the status quo ante? Perhaps mm. what it is that you will pick up on first. Well, I mean, <clears throat> you know, at heart, this is a problem, of course, between between leaders and, and the trust yeah. that, or lack thereof that that leaders um, have in each other, and I think. To repair that, that will take that will take a long time because, of course, once you've done certain things to me and I've done certain things to you, it's very difficult. But I guess, I mean, at least in terms of um, but rebuilding yeah. trust. I mean, if that I agree with you hundred percent. Trust is a major problem, and then you cannot agree to trust each other starting today. That's right. like a, you need to cultivate sure. that. And so, so if this is and it is a major problem, just like many many other conflict, there is concern. Over trust, especially when the conflict becomes more and more intractable, right. the less less trust there is. Right. So you're going to have to fashion a way by which to nurture. Yes. The well, trust. So, something for example, Qatar could do. You know, as you know, the number one demand on the list that was issued by the four blockading countries was the closure of Al Jazeera. Qatar cannot cannot close Al Jazeera. It's the great symbol of Qatar's independence. 
But what, of course, Al Jazeera Arabic, for example, could do is tone down some of its coverage of eastern Saudi Arabia. That's the particularly sensitive mm-hmm. one, of course, from mm-hmm. the Saudi perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a number of things there in, in tone. There's a number, of course, of particularly their commentators, not so much their news, but their commentators, who they invite on the, on the talk shows that they have. You know, those are ways in which Qatar certainly signals good. And they've been very vociferous. They've been very critical. Absolutely. And, 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 and they really, I mean, they are so right. I mean, I think the Saudis have a point there. Yes. Regardless, regardless how they run their affairs, whether they think of themselves, think of others, they have a point. That is, if you are a member of the GCC, and if you want to be a member of it, then you can't afford to criticize us 24 hours a day. Right, and in an all this kind of hyperbolic yeah, yeah, uh, discourse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think they may well, you know, from a, from a real political point of view, may well have to, something has to give, as I said, particularly in the kind of editorial line uh, that Al Jazeera Arabic takes. I mean, Al Jazeera English is, I don't think, so much of a problem, but the Arabic uh, may well be. So that might be one way in which Qatar can signal um, right, it's, right. It's, its good intentions, its willingness to reach right. out. Uh, at the same de- at the same time, as I said, I think that the other countries should should drop the ludicrous demand, and also, by the way, one that would be extremely unpopular in Qatar as well as in the rest of the Arab world to close down Al Jazeera. This, 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 this of course, is no. This is not going to happen. I mean, this is the uh, flagship. Yes. <laughs> of Qatar, he cannot take it's something. Brand, that it's an international brand. They uh, gave them the uh, international recognition. Who would else hear of Qatar? If it wasn't for Al Jazeera, precisely. I mean, but this is, and this is what you know. The Saudis need also to come to terms with the, with certain facts of life that they cannot change, no matter how hard they try. Uh, so, so this is one good issue to identify. And and, and, and did you write about this point, particular in terms of how? Well, I've I've well, I, I haven't written specifically on the on the Jazeera thing, but I've I've we've been talking about it with many people. In Qatar, but also with a number of people in the United States. I mean, the other thing that Qatar is doing, but perhaps it could do even more, is, is work with the U.S. Treasury on money flows and to uh, make it clear beyond doubt to particularly people in the U.S. Uh, that what may have been a reality 10 or 15 years ago, where, for example, private Qatari donations went to causes that were mm-hmm. unidentified, therefore mm-hmm. often ending up yeah. with troublesome characters in Afghanistan right, and right. Syria and other places. Uh, you know, Qatar has already done all the work on the public side. I think there's a number of things it could do, very technical things to do with regulation and, and banking rules. They've been quite loose in this Historically, area. they've been very loose yeah, in that, as has been most of the Gulf. I mean, Dubai yeah. is a notorious yeah. center, of course, yeah. for the underworld, yeah. particularly yeah. from South Asia. Yeah. Uh, and or Nigeria. But the Saudis themselves yeah. contribute to that. Well, this is the thing, of course, I think <laughs> when you travel around the Arab world to <laughs> Saudi Arabia lecturing anyone about funding terrorism is a bit of a difficult sell. I know that. I, I, yeah, I think for, problem, for, right? for, for most ordinary people <laughs> in the Middle East, this is, uh, if there ever was a hypocritical charge, it must be this one. Um, but so I think, I think Qatar can do that. Also, it, it is good in its own right. It is good because I think it would um, help boost its credentials in the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. Also, a number of European countries have questions about where Qatari money has been going. Um, and so I think those those two would be would be would be crucial steps forward. Um, you know, there's also a number of high profile cases. You know, there's there's a number of people stuck literally in transit. There's Qatari stuck in the Emir- in the Emirates and in in Saudi. There's there's a man stuck in the Doha airport. You know, these are mediatized cases by letting these people go by finding an amicable solution. It also creates a change of atmosphere of of goodwill on your part, goodwill on my part. Um, and it's from that kind of thing, I think, that we then have to move to some kind of Gulf summit at some point, probably in the United States, before we have it in, in, in the but Gulf. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, mm. a, I'm, in a way, always skeptical of summits, unless <laughs> I know. <laughs> unless I know 
Okay, what it is that we want to achieve, right. that is agree on in the summit, right. and then what is going to be the, how we're going to continue with it, that is, what's right. going to follow. Right. What I find with these all the international conferences, wonderful ideas, they made, they shake hands, take photos, uh, wonderful speeches, and then, and then everybody goes back home and nothing happens. Right. We, you know this better than yeah, anyone. Sure. This is going on all the time. So if you were to have a summit, what would be what it is that we want to agree upon and then develop the kind of process to implement that but, and would there going to be any kind of enforcement mechanism not force not by military no. force but enforcement mechanism that'd be gain and losses if you follow you don't follow yeah well i think i mean that, that's the difficult point of course because yeah, you know, who would enforce and how and and what and how do you measure meddling interference? Right? How how, how does yeah. one? Well, it's quantify? very difficult. Precisely. But if you if there is no enforcement mechanism of any kind, what's the likelihood that people follow through? I mean, yeah, very little. Uh, I mean, my, uh, my experience. Unless you change exactly the somehow you change the perception of interests. Um, put it this way. For Qatar, I think a summit would be valuable in and of itself because it would show them somehow being back in the fold. The very image, for example, of Mohammed bin Salman meeting the Emir of Qatar and not uh, no longer having these kind of uh, regime change uh, calls, I think symbolically would, would, would be an important step on the Qatari side to having some kind of sense of, of trust that the other GCC partners, uh, neighboring countries, would have changed perhaps some of their more... Um, a radical or aggressive aggressive stance. Yeah. Similarly, of course, for, for them, as I said, it's it, the very nature of their demands make it very hard to respond to this. I mean, if it was quantifiable, trade volumes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, presence of this or that, you know, that would be the easy part. But you know, how do you measure? You know, you need support, appreciation, sympathy. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, I, I understand you're you're right to point it out, but it's very but, difficult. You know, to when I talk to about it. enforcement, however, in terms of um, quid pro quo. That is, if I perform, I don't get something. That is, if the quid pro quo has gainful, is gainful, right. then I'm going to adhere to it. Right. Because if I don't, I'm not going to be punished per se, I'm going to be punishing myself right. in terms of resolution. So if you, if you were to think in those terms, that is, here's the agreement and here's the mechanism of enforcement that it depends on give and take. Yes. As if you perform, I'm going to do this. That is going to depend on mutual performance based on any given agreement. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. But that, that's, that's precisely where the, the devil will be in the details. I'm, yeah. I'm afraid uh, for this. Well, that's always the case when you know, the devil is in the details, but then you cannot uh, leave the details. You're going to have to deal with them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, However but, but, devilish but, but, it may be. Of course, but here's, here's the problem. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the demands, at the list of demands that the, that the four countries issued, the problem is that those demands were said in, 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 in terms that make it very difficult to, to think of any quid pro quo because they are so absolutist and they leave so little space, except for complete surrender, complete capitulation, that even beginning to have a conversation about this is, 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 um, is complex. As I said, I, I think, um, as, as, in, as with past Gulf crisis, I mean, so much of it comes down to the relationship between the leaders. Yeah, and they're, yeah, they're willing I mean, that's, to, that's, even more than yeah, in other countries. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 no, the, you're right. The very you're nature right. of Gulf yeah. society yeah, is yeah, is yeah. particularly um, there is jealousy, in, there jealous, there emotional, is envy, emotion, different wings of the family. No I mean, question, exactly. um, and that makes things much much harder. So, yeah. um, so you just you have to start with that as well. That is another point. 
Right. So we're trying to identify the yes. things that actually can help building a trust is one toning down the, the rhetoric in uh, uh, for the leaders to start to think in terms okay we are the symbol if we do not perform if we do not show that we are interested well who is going to to, to, yes. to do that I mean these are the things I think we need to identify right. and uh, in order to begin to think in terms of how do you re how do you come up eventually you need to resolve something yes. that you cannot really live with forever. Yes. Well, th there's one other thing that I, I should mention that not many people know, but that that's, that's very important, is, which is that Qatar has filed a complaint, the World Trade Organization. And this is, this is important because Qatar claims that the way the embargo has been imposed violates WTO measures, that the concept of national security that has been invoked is so broad and so vague that it creates a very dangerous precedent. And it's something that many small countries, including my own, but many other countries around the world are, are watching. And the problem, of course, with these kind of legal um, uh, dossiers is, of course, that they have the tendency to stick around, even if you and I make up politically. Mm -hmm. What happens to the WOP complaint? Because many countries do want a verdict on this, exactly because they want to have a precedent that you cannot do this. So in, in that sense, it, would be, it will be fascinating to see what how they would find a solution, even if... Assuming they can somehow get away out of the out of the political distrust, um, what did they do with this with with this with this question of the trade and the precedent that has been that has been set? The fact but but uh, you're right. But the trade, however, is not one way street. I mean, they they understand that. Right. They know that. So it is not something that um, that you can really isolate. And then if it's no, a, but but, but but the law has a way of, of taking yeah. its own course. Yeah. There are certain. Yeah. Procedures that mean that you cannot just make it go away. You cannot just say. No, that's the point. And that's uh, yeah. it's sticky in a way right. that's 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 hard to to work with. All right. Well, I mean, um, I think I think we resolved the Qatari problem. Very good. <laughs> Moving on to uh, North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Great that pleasure. Was fun. <laughs> Great pleasure. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.